Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 13 this evening. I am I'm very excited to, to be in John chapter 13, just so you can get a little bit of a timeline of where we are in the context of Jesus's life. We last week we we talked about Palm Sunday, which was the beginning of, of Holy Week, which is this really the climax of Jesus's public ministry that would lead him to uh, Palm Sunday entering into uh, Jerusalem where they're laying down palm branches they are they are shouting that he is uh, the Hosanna to, for them to save them that he's Hosanna the Savior their their Messiah and then in a matter of days that Friday he would be crucified on a cross uh, mocked and scorned and betrayed by his people crucified by the Romans, and, and so that's the, the week that we call Holy Week, the, or Passion Week, uh, because it begins on that Sunday, and it'll also end on that Sunday in the resurrection of Christ, and so obviously this past weekend we had Good Friday and Easter. I hope this really weekend was one that, that just encouraged you, nourished your heart and, and your love for the Lord. We're going to continue, and, and we're going to, I guess, go back in time, so I know Easter just happened, but we're going to go back before Easter and continue on in this story. And what we're going to be doing, we only have three weeks left, y'all, of the bridge, which is kind of sad. I know, I know. I'm sorry, I wish I could change it, but you guys are the ones that have finals, okay? So don't blame it on, <laughs> kidding. We're not going to have this argument. But uh, yeah, we got three more, including this one, and then finals happen. We'll have ourselves a wonderful finals fiesta, and then the summer is upon us. So we're going to make the most of these three weeks. We're going to spend the rest of our time in John, studying what we would probably call the Last Supper dialogue. You say, what on earth is the Last Supper? Well, that Thursday, and even if you read in verse 1 of John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. So what he's saying right here, John is laying the setting that this is right before, hours before. Jesus would be betrayed in the middle of the night, by Judas Iscariot in the Garden of Gethsemane, but they are in what we call the upper room, and it is just Jesus and his disciples, and he is sharing his last meal with them before he is crucified. So this is why we call it the Last Supper. And so this kind of gives us a little bit of a setting. These are Jesus's final words uh, before he is to be crucified. Obviously, he resurrects and spends 40 more days with them and he has a little bit more of a crash course of ministry before he is ascending to be with the father and then they kind of go and everything happens from there but this is a pivotal conversation and john the writer of this gospel spends more chapters more coverage on the last supper and the conversations and the teachings that jesus has for them than any of the other gospels matthew mark and luke so these things are very critical uh, to John to, to cover these things. And, and so it means it's very, very important for us because we ask ourselves, man, what does Jesus really, really want us to know in, in the last moments before his crucifixion? These are important words. They're not just casual conversation. Uh, these are very critical for us. And John 13 happens to be one of my favorite passages because uh, Jesus is going to to embody an, an illustration for them to prove a point of, of what Christians are supposed uh, to be. So we're going to do John 13. I'm going to try and get through as many of these as I can in these coming weeks, but we're not going to make it through all of it. Um, but but as, as much as we can is our goal. So uh, the, the format of, of tonight is very, very simple. John 13, we have an example that Jesus is going to, to give us. 
we have a denial from Peter. He said, not that denial, but another denial. It's very common in Peter right here in this little setting here. We have, we have the example, we have the denial, we have the lesson, and then we have the goal. That's a weird way to say four. I'm going to go to that. Don't do that. That's weird. Four. The example, the denial, the lesson, and the goal. So that's what we're going to see here in what Jesus is doing. So first we have to look at what this example is. We know that, that Jesus knows his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, Jesus knows all of the events are about to unravel very, very soon. So he gets up in verse 4 from supper. He laid aside his garments. He takes a towel. He girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So Jesus has this moment where... Uh, he gets up, and everybody's probably watching him because they've been listening to, to him, him talk with them and, and share some lessons with them. And he begins to do things that are very uncommon for, for what the teacher or the master uh, would be doing because washing the feet of an Israelite or anyone in that day was, was not a very happy job. In fact, that would be a, a job fit for the role of a servant, someone that was on the lowest of the totem pole in status in their society, because if you think about washing the feet of somebody in ancient Israel or ancient times, uh, they're not walking around in bomba socks and hokas, okay? That's not, their, that's not their thing. They don't have sidewalks. They don't have all these nice little things. Uh, they don't shower with soap and all of that stuff that we have in our day and age. They're, they're wearing primitive sandals. There are not uh, sidewalks like we would think of it there's going to be animals all around with their excrement and mud and dirt and just a bunch of general nastiness. And so these guys have been walking around all day. They came back from Bethany. They've been walking around. They're nasty and grimy. And, and one of the roles in this, uh, in their society was when you came into somebody's house, like they didn't also like really sit in chairs. They would, they would like lay down and kind of uh, recline uh, around a, a smaller table of sorts. And so you've kind of got each other's feet right next to each other, and that's, that's nasty as well. And so usually a servant of the house would have a role in order to clean everybody's feet before they would walk in and have a meal. That was just proper customs for them, keeping everything sanitary. But we know that it's only Jesus and his disciples that are there, the 12 of them. And uh, even more backstory to this, on the way to the upper room where they're about to have the Last Supper, uh, the disciples are arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And say, oh, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm going to have the right hand. I'm going to be the right hand of the throne. You know, I'm going to be this guy. They're having who's the greatest kind of a conversation. So they go in, mud, dung, all this crap, literally probably, all over their feet. And they have, just have this conversation of who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be... Jesus 
Jesus's left hand or right hand man who's going to be the general of this army this is about to be our Trump triumphant Messiah and I'm wondering where my place in the pecking order is going to be because remember they're expecting a triumphant Messiah that's about to take the throne that's their expectation and they wonder where their place is and then Jesus before this supper really takes place takes off his robe puts a towel around his waist, fills this water, uh, fills this basin with water, and he starts to wash their feet. Jesus, God in the flesh, the Messiah, takes on the role and the form of a servant. This is completely counterintuitive to everything they are anticipating not only in who Jesus and who he was and everything that he claimed to be but but even that he would do something like that like that a servant would do I mean this is completely countercultural, and, and it is shocking to them and Jesus obviously has has a, a a goal in mind of this but but he is at this moment setting the example for them he's just shocking them saying, why, why are you the one that's washing our feet? So shocking to them that, that the Messiah, the, the person that all things, all people will be under his control, in subjection, under his feet, as the scriptures say, he is the object of our worship. He is the object of our total devotion, and yet he's the one that's washing the disciples' feet. It should be the other way around, should it not? So shocking to them that, that Jesus would even consider doing such a thing, and Peter here, here's our denial. He, he probably washed a few of the, of the disciples' feet, and they're just kind of in stunned silence, being like, why is this happening? And then the basin gets to Simon Peter, our good friend Peter, who's never afraid to speak up, is he not? I mean, he's just always a little bit gung-ho. A, a lot of times he's out there, and he's like, all right, I'll say what everybody else is thinking. And so in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? I think that's where the emphasis is. He's saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the God of the universe. I know who you are. You're the word made flesh. You wash my feet? He says, Jesus, this should go the other way around. You shouldn't be washing my feet. I should be washing your feet. Peter's not about this whole example. He's not about whatever Jesus is trying to do here, whatever point he might be trying to do. He's saying this is totally backwards. And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. So Jesus is saying, hey, let's just go along with this. I'm about to, I'm about to sit back down after I wash your feet and we're going to talk about this. We're going to have a little bit of a lesson from this. But, but Peter stands strong. Verse 8, Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. This is about as emphatic as they could speak in their language. He says, this is never going to happen. He's probably like pulling his feet away, right? He's saying, no, 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 no. You're not even going to touch my feet. And this is, at least in the initial thought process of Peter, this is an attempt to honor Christ. Saying, no, 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 you're the king. 
I have a great reverence for you. You shouldn't be washing my feet. But then Jesus moves this to a spiritual reality. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, oh, sorry, verse, at the end of verse 8, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He's saying, if I do not wash you, if I'm not the one that cleanses you, then you have no part with me. So Jesus moves this into a spiritual metaphor. He shifts this example to a spiritual metaphor. This washing he speaks of in verse 8 is a spiritual cleansing. He's speaking of salvation here. He's saying, hey, if I'm not the one that cleanses you because I'm the only one that can remove your sins, I'm, can, I'm the only one that can remove this dirt from you, if I don't wash you, you're not going to be with me. He says, you have no relationship with me if I'm not the one that washes you. You can't wash yourself. I must be the one that washes you. It's only in Jesus that we can be cleansed from our sins. And if he's not the one that washes us, then we remain in our sin. We remain dirty. And so what I would say the key to this, this whole metaphor, this illustration Jesus is using here is that our salvation will only come through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We place our faith in him that Jesus is our provision to satisfy the wrath of God, the requirement of the law that for the wages of sin is death. So Jesus has to die on that cross that God has to be made flesh and die on a cross. That is the humiliation of our Messiah. He has to be humiliated to a degree that, that he would die on a cross. That's the death of a criminal. That's the death that a slave would die. So this is the humiliation of our Savior. But what they couldn't reconcile is that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we are redeemed through his sacrifice and a humiliating sacrifice at that. So Jesus is giving his disciples a foretaste of this moment. He's saying, I am going to be humiliated in order so that you can be cleaned. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, it's my humiliation on a cross that will solidify your salvation. That will stamp your salvation, that your debt will be canceled because I paid it. Well, they already said yes because they placed their faith. It was a done reality, but Jesus' act is that which stamped it. And so it's my humiliation that will solidify your salvation. And so what he's telling Peter is to stop rejecting my humble service to you because if you keep rejecting all of my attempts to serve you through my humiliation, first in the washing of your feet, and then tomorrow in your crucifixion, if you keep rejecting these attempts, then you have no place with me. In essence, what Jesus is saying to Peter is saying, hey, if you keep rejecting my attempts to clean you, to serve you, that I would be humiliated so that you can have life. He says, you have no place with me. So you're going to let me wash your feet, and you're going to let me die for you. Because you can't get up there on that cross, Peter. Neither can we, because we are not the perfect sacrifice. We are not the perfection that the Messiah was. We are not the spotless lamb. 
Peter understands now is that Jesus is speaking metaphorically of spiritual cleansing, which is why he asked Jesus in, in verse 9. I love this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, if you're, if you're saying this is a spiritual cleansing and I have no part with you if you don't wash my feet, then, then you just need to wash all of me. Wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Like, wash all of me. Like, I, I don't want my feet to just be walking around in heaven. Like, I want all of me in heaven, okay? If this is some spiritual thing, then let's go get baptized, right? Dun let's dunk me in the Jordan, okay? Wash all of me. Peter's just extreme in every aspect of his life. He says, well, if we're going to do this thing, then let's do this thing. Cleanse me, all right? Clean me all the way. And then Jesus said to him in verse 10, he who has bathed, past tense remember that he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean and you are clean he said to peter and you are clean but not all of you are clean verse 11 for he knew the one who was betraying him for this reason he said not all of you are clean speaking of judas iscariot who was going to betray him. So what he is now emphasizing to his disciples is that you have already been bathed. Like you, your salvation is, you are saved, you are clean. You have life with me because you've placed your faith in me. We know Peter's confession, Matthew 16, 33, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. That for all of these guys, except for Judas, their salvation was secure. Jesus still had to go and die on the cross to, to finalize all of those things. But when Jesus says, you are clean, isn't that just a breath of fresh air? Can you imagine? He's saying, hey, Peter, you're clean. You've already been bathed. You're clean. You're with me. He says, don't freak out. You say, well, well, well why, are you, why are you washing my feet? What's this whole deal? Why are you washing my feet? It's because even though we are saved, we need our feet washed because we are still going to sin after our salvation. Yes, we are saved. We have been cleansed. We have a relationship with God now. Uh, everyone in this room that has that confession of faith, we're, we're saved. Our salvation is secure, and yet we're going to live in this life, even though we've been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, we're still going to walk places that we shouldn't. And we're going to step into things and stumble in places that we should not, that we are going to sin after our salvation. And for that, we need our feet to be washed. What Jesus is emphasizing here is the need for the believers to walk in continual repentance. That's what we have to do as believers. That our relationship with God is not, he does not disown us when we sin post-salvation. Our identity is in Christ. The spirit of God is in us. That's not something that we're going to lose or he's going to take away from us. But we ought to, uh, uh, salvation, not salvation, confession should be something that, that we practice. Repentance, that we would turn from these things, that we would acknowledge and walk in the light, say, man, I, I shouldn't have done that. God, you were right, your way is good, and, and I chose a different way, and that wasn't best. So God, I trust you, would you forgive me? So salvation is a one-time thing, but there is continual repentance in our lives to maintain intimacy with Jesus. That's the goal 
this repentance of this confession, not that we would be resaved. It's not like every night, right? I need to, con- I need to repent for all my sins so I can be resaved. It's not our reality. I share a story with this uh, Asher. I love this guy. He's, he's going to be two in 13 days, which is kind of crazy. We're about to have a two-year-old. And as he is growing and developing, he is also growing and developing in his desire for independence, and his acts of rebellion are increasing. And one of the ones that we've been having a particular struggle with is when he's eating and he's in his high chair. When he kind of just gets bored or he's all done with his food and he's just ready to be out of there, um, we've tried to teach him to just say, all done, all done, I'm ready to get down. And that's, sometimes he does it and it's a great time and we have a wonderful, we're like, okay, yep, let's just clean you up and we sing our little cleanup song and we put him down and everything goes great. But there's other times our good son, Asher, doesn't really want to say all done. He's just saying, hey, you keep putting all this food on my plate and I don't want it on my plate anymore. And so you know what he does. He takes it and he throws it on the ground. He throws it all over the place. He takes his water ball and he throws it. And we've told him multiple times, we're like, no throwing. Do not throw your food. Just say all done. No throwing. And we were kind of doing this whole thing, but then he would do it, and, and, and we were like, well, we're not. We're just kind of being like, stop. Stop doing that. And so uh, one of our friends was like, hey, you, you need to let your, your kids need to know that actions have consequences. And your word is true, okay? That you can't just be like, ah, sure, don't throw this thing. And then they do it, and there's no consequences for it. And so what we started to do is when he does that, we will just immediately take him out of his chair and go put him in his room by himself. And can I just tell you, he hates it. I mean, hates it. This guy is weeping and throwing a tantrum. He is so sad. He's banging on the door. He is sobbing uncontrollably. It is just the worst thing in the world, Tim. And it's starting to work, right? Actions have consequences, and sometimes he'll be like holding his water bottle, and it's like almost thinking to throw it, and then he'll and, and then he say, "Room by myself?" Like he knows, like ah, if I do this, I will go in the room by myself, and I don't like that. And uh, we're like, "Yeah, we'll put you in your room by yourself if you throw your food." And so we're slowly getting there. And I bring this story up because when Asher rebels. I as a loving father, Amy as a loving mother, we need to show Asher that actions have consequences, right? that he's going to be punished when he disobeys and he does things that he shouldn't. And so in that moment, I mean, it, it, it pains me. It really does. I hate doing it. I hate when he starts crying and all of that stuff. The last time I did it, he threw it. And I said, all right, Asher, you're going to your room. And his eyes just welled up immediately looking at me. And he's just like, oh, no, I did it again, you know, and has this moment. But I take him, I put him in his room. And he just starts crying, and he's doing all of these things, and he's just kind of sitting in the consequences of his actions. But here's, here's the first reality. I'm not about to disown Asher as my son. Our relationship is still intact, right? That, that our relationship is not severed because he threw some mac and cheese onto the floor. And, and that's, that's a truth here in, in the scriptures when we see our relationship with the Father, that even when we sin, we don't want to sin. We don't want to just sin so that grace may abound, but, but our relationship with the Father is not severed. But this is my favorite thing. When I open the door, and I, we wait like a minute or two, it's not, <laughs> he's, he's distraught, guys. We don't have to, his, he knows, okay? When I open the door, 
the thing that Asher wants so, so badly is to be back in my arms. That's what he wants so badly. The worst thing for Asher in that whole process is not that he didn't get to finish his meal. It's not that he doesn't get to watch Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. If he's over there in the room, he's like, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse? I get to watch that? It's not that any of those surrounding things, the loss of his circumstances, no more playtime, no more any of that stuff, the most just destructing and destroying thing for him is that our relationship for a brief moment has been just distorted. It's been weakened. That, that we've, we've just lost that intimacy, that there's a door between us because of his actions. And when I open that door, he doesn't go past me. He doesn't go to his toys or anything. He actually, he just, in, through his tears, he just says, Dad, Dad, hold you. Which he says you because we're saying, hey, you know, we'll, we'll be like, oh, that's you. Or do you want this? And we just say you. And so sometimes he thinks his name is you. And we're working on that. All right? he's, only, he's not even two yet, right? But it's the sweetest thing. He's just like, Dad, Dad, hold you. Dad, Dad, hold you. I'm the one that put him in the room. I'm the one that let him have this consequence in his life. But when I open that door, he just wants to be with me. And as I've been sitting in that moment and just processing of how that reflects to us in the Christian life, I said, man, that's what I want my heart to be for the Father. That when I sin, I'm not just sitting there wondering, like, man, I wonder what consequences I'm going to get. Like, I wonder how this is going to fall about. Like, what earthly things are going to be kind of distorted and messed up? Like, what consequences are going to be there? I hope the most important thing to us when we sin is that we just want to be close to the Father again. And that's why sin sucks. Because for a moment, it just weakens our intimacy with the Father, our relationship with Him, and that we would run headlong back to Him, not hiding away from Him in shame, but that we would just want to be held and to be with Him again. So Asher's teaching me some pretty good theology right there. Um, so what Jesus does, He puts Peter back in his place, and He says, hey, I'm going to clean you. And it's through my humbling, it's through my sacrifice that you will be cleansed both in the washing of your feet, but now, but very, very soon in my humiliation on the cross to die the death of a criminal so that you can have life. So Peter begins to understand this. And then, verse 12, after he has this, this dialogue with, with, with Peter, we move into the lesson. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? I love this little moment from Jesus. He says, all right, it's time to learn. You know, this is like every good teacher. It's like, what did you learn? What did I teach you? What did, what did you get from this? I just washed all of your feet. It was very awkward. You felt weird about this whole thing. And now I'm here sitting. Tell me what you learned. Tell me what you learned. And so we move into this lesson. And I, I, I've got uh, maybe three lessons here for us that, that we can unpack briefly. So we finish this washing their feet. And he begins to apply this example. So number one. There is no earthly status that makes Christians immune from service. There is no earthly status that makes Christians immune from service. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
if Jesus, who is our master, our teacher, our Lord, that he has a higher status than us, a higher identity than us. He is our creator, and we are his creation, that he is, of all people, one that should not be washing and serving his creation. But if he sets that standard for us, how much more then should we serve one another? That's, that's the lesson that Jesus is laying out here. That there is no person on this earth that is unworthy of your time, service, and love. There's nobody. It's not your annoying younger sibling. It's not the social outcast that you don't always love being around. It's not your parents. It's not even your enemies that you hold grudges against that have been mean to you, that have done things to you that you haven't loved. There is no person on this earth God does not call us to serve in humility because our following of Christ binds us to a commitment to sacrificial service of which he sets the standard. He sets the example. We are not better than. There is no one that's a waste of our time. There is no duty or service or moment that we should be like, ah, I'm not going to step into that. That's a little bit below me. There's nothing. Because God in the flesh served creation, his disciples, his followers. Lesson number two. This comes from verse 17, which we'll read in a second. This teaching of Jesus is in vain if it does not change the way that we live. I'll start in verse 15 just so we can kind of read it in the context. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... You are blessed if you do them. This is what I love. Jesus is good. Because we can have this whole conversation about, yeah, you should love one another. You should serve one another, outdoing each other, showing honor and all that stuff. And we can be like, man, that's a good word. And then we can go right outside these doors and nothing changes. Right? We've been there. We've all been there like, oh, what a convicting message. Anyways, how's life? And then we just, boom, gone. Out of our minds, out of our house. Like we don't commit to it at all. But Jesus is saying in verse 17, if you know these things, Jesus is saying, if you get what I'm saying, if you're picking this up, if you have just some mental cognizant understanding of my lesson here, you are blessed if you live it out. You are blessed if you live it out. And that's just true across the board as we look at the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus, that it's one thing for us to know it. It is an entirely different thing for us to actually live it out. There's this in, uh, incredible story. I've heard it from Francis Chan. Maybe he's the one that did it. Maybe he's just pulling it from somebody else. But uh, he has a daughter, and his daughter, he goes into his daughter's room, and her room is just an absolute wreck. Everything is, is cluttered. It's a mess. Her clothes are everywhere. Things are dirty. It's just kind of the worst. And he sits his daughter down. He says, okay, you need to clean your room. When I come back, you, your room needs to be clean because it's not good to live this way. <laughs> you shouldn't have your room this messy. And so he goes off. He kind of does whatever his thing is. He comes back in like two hours. Goes into his daughter's room. 
as you can guess, her room is an absolute mess. Nothing has changed. It is still uh, the worst. And he's looking and he's seeing all these things and he sees his daughter and she has this excited face. And Francis goes like, what? What have you done for the last two hours? And she goes, oh, you're going to love this. I heard what you said and I memorized it. And then I memorized it in three other languages. And now I have all of this amazing stuff. Like I can just tell anybody like what you told me. <laughs> and in that analogy, when we see how silly it is, it's like, oh, wow, I memorized clean your room in four different languages. And I wasted all that time where I should have been cleaning my room. And if that's just not us sometimes, that we can spend so much time up here and be like, man, I memorized this verse, but I don't live it. And we're missing the point. This is a waste of a time. This whole night is a waste of a time if we walk out those doors and nothing changes. It just is. You are blessed if you live it out. I just memorize it in four languages. Hey, memorize things in many languages. That's cool. But live it out. The blessing comes from doing we walk out of this and we must live in a certain way in light of the standard and the example that Jesus has set for us. That's lesson two. Lesson number three, John 13 makes very clear that love is not so much a feeling. It is very much a commitment. Love is not so much a feeling. It is very much a commitment. And here's what I would, I don't know. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say Jesus wasn't just randomly excited to just get down there and wash his disciples' feet. I'm pretty sure, and we know this because when Jesus sits down, he had a motive behind washing their feet. But when they asked him, like, Jesus, why are you washing our feet? And he's just not like, I don't know, I just kind of felt like it. I was just kind of in the mood. But if we view love in service of other people just when we're feeling like it, just when we kind of have the motivation and we're in there, it's like, you know, it's convenient for me or whatever. I don't know. I'm in a good mood. I'm just going to serve you. Like, that's the, 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 the range and the green light for when we're going to serve each other. We're missing the entire picture of, of what love is in the scriptures. We just are. And so what Jesus is saying here is that love is not so much a feeling. It is very much a commitment. Because most people... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess, don't like cleaning nasty, dirty, grimy feet. And the point from this is not that we go out there and it's like, all right, somebody go grab a bucket. Let's start cleaning each other's feet. But this is, this is just an example. He's getting to the heart of it. Like we just all become, uh, I don't know, who are the people that clean, I don't know, shoe shiners. Like we all go working in the mall and be like, hey, Jesus did it. I'm about to, <laughs> I'm about to spit, shine these shoes in obedience to God. It's like, hey, there's probably a bigger element here, a heart behind that. I'm not knocking shoe shiners okay just that's my my claws there but the heart of this is that Jesus is embodying sacrificial love that we would love and serve others out of obedience to God because this is our standard because nobody's going to naturally volunteer for this role nobody's going to just naturally serve others well we're going to do it when it's convenient for us. Maybe we're going to do it when it looks good. But love is a commitment to sacrifice for the sake of others far more than a momentary feeling. 
love because we feel like it. We don't love to get something in return. We don't love for our, our own glory to grow. That's true in all life. But I'll just tell you, anyone else is married, Tara Grace is married, man, marriage will slap you in the face if you don't get this right. <laughs> Am I preaching? I'm preaching. I mean, it will slap you in the face. And then, you don't have to clap for this one, you can't yet, but when you have kids, it'll double slap you in the face, and then they'll kick you right in the nose. Man, like, if you just do things for people in your life when it's convenient or when you're feeling like it, oh, you are in for it. And your spouse is too, because you're going to be the worst spouse ever. It's sacrificial love that we do things not when it's convenient to us, but, but for the sake of others, because Christ set the standard. And we as Christians, we follow in that commitment. That's what we do. And so a lot of the times in life, you're going to be pushing through a desire not to do that thing. That's just, that's just the bar. That's just the expectation that I would put on you and say, man, you're not always going to want to do the things that you ought to do in order to love and show honor and serve others. And that's marriage, but that's life. It's life. So it's lesson one, or lesson one, two, and three. Lesson one, there is no earthly status that makes Christians immune from service. There is no person on this earth that is unworthy of your time, service, and love. Lesson number two, this teaching of Jesus is in vain if it does not change the way that we live. The blessing comes from living this out. Lesson number three, love is not so much a feeling, it is very much a commitment. If we serve others only when it is convenient, then we can hardly call it love. Love is a commitment to sacrifice for the sake of others far more than a momentary feeling. So we've seen the example, we've seen the denial, now we see, and we've seen the lesson, and here we have the goal. What is the goal of all of these things? If you look with me in verse 34 of chapter 13, Jesus is speaking here. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. He is our standard of love, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus establishes the standard for all Christian conduct. He's saying, you love others as I have loved you. There's the bar. It's a very high one, but it's the bar nonetheless. But the goal behind this, we don't we don't just love so we look good. We don't just love so somebody will do something in return. That's not, as you jump into marriage, the, the marriage covenant is one. It's like, hey, I'll do these things if you do these things. I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. It's not this 50-50 commitment. It's 100%. I'm committing myself to you till death do us part, even when you suck. You can put that in your vows. It'd be weird, but hey. That's the, that's the covenant commitment. That's love. It's unconditional. That's the love of the Father. And so we love because God first loved us. We serve others because Christ first served us. This is 1 John 4. We love because love is from God. And anyone that does not love is not from God. That love is a fruit 
of the Spirit that is within us. What is the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. And, and if you think about it, this is just a very, very simple English grammatical moment. But the fruit of the Spirit, that is love, comes from the Spirit because it's not the fruit of Jake. It's not the fruit of Saul. It's the fruit of the Spirit in us. So God is the one that's producing those things in us. So that's why Jesus is saying here, hey, when, when you live in a certain way that, that models me and, and follows after the, the commitment that I have made, the way that I have made, people are gonna, should see you and say, man, that is such a loving person. And we should say, don't look at me, but look through me to see God working in me. That anything that's good in me, this love is because of God. Because God first loved me, and now he is changing my life. So that now I love. The goal that we would live in such a way that we love is that when people look at us, they would give glory to God. That we should live in a way that is counter-cultural, that is different from what we see today in this world. When people see us, when people are around us, what do they think? What do they feel? How do we act around them? Because what Jesus says for us in verse 35 by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's our calling card, love. And that's a challenge, but that's the calling card for us. And so just to finish our time, I, I want to speak very practically for, for this room. This obviously is my job, but I, I think and I pray a lot about just our ministry here that we have and uh, DBC College within the context of Denton, Texas. And I don't think it's an exaggeration. Maybe you can disagree with me later, and that's fine. But to say that our town and UNT and Texas Women's University and NCTC Go Lions, uh, they're not necessarily a Christian bubble. I think we can agree. I think we can agree it's not like we... We're probably not the home team. We're probably not the majority. We're probably like, you're a Christian? Sick. And like, you're not going to get that the majority of the time. Uh, like, all oh, right, I love Christians. You know, it's, it's maybe going to be a little bit confused that that's still a thing or hostile or being like, you're weird or uh, you're intolerant of, of the way that I live because of your Christian beliefs. Like, it's a little bit more hostile. It's more dark for us. And so we as a staff, I mean, we just pray for this often of, of what people would, would see and think of us in the context of Denton, Texas. And, and I just want you to know now, so you can gear up for this, I hope you stick around with us in the summer and in the fall, but uh, we are going to be making a big push to be on campus this summer in the fall and in the years to come, and we want to be making a big push. We're gonna be at every single summer orientation for freshman students and for transfer students throughout the summer. We wanna be at so many of the sporting events, one, because it's fun, but we want to rub shoulders with the community that we're in. We want them to know us. We want them to be like, oh yeah, these are these people. And, and we want to invite them to come and see what God is like through his word and in through his people as they would meet us on a Tuesday night or on a Sunday morning. And as we have been making this push, and there's so many things that, that we could unpack as we talk about, man, how do we want to be mission-minded? How do we want to have this uh, 
just a lifestyle of evangelism, not just say, let's put a, in a big event together and say we've done our job, but that it's all of us, that we would be making Christ's name known, that we would be lights in the darkness. We could have this whole conversation, but at the very least in the context of John 13, what will they think of us when they walk in for the first time? What are we known for? What is our flag that we plant in the ground? I hope that when they spend a Tuesday with us, maybe they say, man, I don't know. That guy said a lot of weird things about the Bible <laughs> and a lot of things that I disagree with. But wow, those people were loving and kind and they cared for me. They wanted to know my name. They took a, genu a genuine interest in my life because that's what the scriptures say we are known for. And we don't sacrifice speaking the truth in the name of love because we speak the truth in love. And the truth is loving to a people that have run contrary to God's word. But they will know that we love them and we care for them and we want them to know God as we know God. And so I'm just going to pray for us that God would just begin to shift us as a whole, but all of us individually that we would be people that love, that sacrifice, that serve, that we outdo one another in showing honor. And that that would begin to spread and spread and multiply as a fire that just begins to kindle as something very small but becomes overwhelming. That when any kind of wet log or somebody that doesn't really know what's going on or that's new here, they just want to come by this fire because it's warm. Because they're loved and they're cared for here that's the way of Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture that you have laid before us in Jesus' humble washing of his disciples' feet. God, we are altogether unworthy uh, to have life with you, to have a relationship with you that you would want anything to do with us because we have rebelled and rebelled and rebelled against you really from the beginning of our lives. And yet your love has pursued us and chased us and drawn us to you. And that even now when we go places where we ought not to go and we get our feet muddy, uh, you're there to cleanse us, to draw us back into relationship and fellowship with you and intimacy with you. So I just pray for my friends in this room. I pray for those that couldn't be with us tonight. Um, as we move forward with these three weeks and throughout the summer and into the fall, Lord, and we just want to, to invite people to come and see, to, to, to share our testimonies of what you have done in our lives and uh, to just be bold with our faith and, and that the gospel would be just quick on our lips as we enter into conversations with people, um, even if it's a little bit scary for us. God, I pray that you would uh, bear much fruit in our lives as we obey you, that when people see us and they meet us and they come into this room, they would be in awe of the love that we have for them and the love that we have for one another. Not because it's self-seeking or for our own glory, but because you first loved us and that changed everything. God, we love you and we worship you now.